Most girls sleep on a mattress or on the floor in the pantry or in the kitchen. If they're lucky, they have a day off per month. Many girls don't. Many girls are not even allowed to leave the house by themselves because they are not trusted. They are not seen as humans. There are videos and campaigns saying that the pets are treated better than the migrant domestic workers that live with these families. And I do believe that's absolutely true. You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. This week's episode of the Worldwide Tribe podcast is about something that I had no idea even existed a year ago, the kafala system. Whilst I was in Beirut a few months ago, I got a shocking insight into this system when I met a group of Nigerian women who were desperately trying to escape it. These women had been enslaved, exploited, abused and stripped of their basic human rights. I was introduced to these women by my friend Dara, who was working day and night to help get them back home to safety. Dara is one of the guests on this episode today. She is a Syrian human rights activist who grew up in Switzerland and now does incredible work to support women who have come to Lebanon under the kafala system. I'll let Dara explain everything, but to give you a brief idea, kafala means sponsorship. But there is a seriously dirty underbelly to this system that preys on vulnerabilities and desperately needs to be exposed. So that's what this podcast is for to share the stories of these hundreds of thousands of women whose voices deserve to be heard. Over to Dara. My name is Dara. I am a human rights activist and humanitarian volunteer. I've been living in Beirut for almost two and a half years. I grew up in Switzerland, got my education in Switzerland and the UK, which is something that really gave me a lot of chances in life. Nottingham Uni, like me. Yes. I can't believe we didn't cross paths there. So yeah. what brought you to Beirut in the first place two and a half years ago? So I always wanted to work in the Middle East. Already as a teenager, I imagined myself working in Damascus. Like before anything happened, I said, I want to work at the UN in Damascus. A lot has changed since. After 2011, when the revolution in Syria started and the clear abuse of human rights became public, I changed my direction towards a more legal field and knew eventually that I wanted to work in the Middle East, connected to human rights. Back then, I was really interested in the big INGOs. In the past two and a half years, actually, I came to appreciate small 
local community-based organizations, including underground work, because I just truly believe that their impact is greater with smaller funds and they are less affected by political agendas. I could not agree more. The reason why I really wanted to have you on this podcast and the reason why I'm here actually in Beirut is because of a phone conversation that we had after we met on Instagram, right? Good old Instagram. So you reached out to me about a fundraiser and it immediately caught my attention because it was about something that I didn't know anything about. We ended up having a phone conversation and you explained to me very beautifully about this system called the Kafala system or a sponsorship system. And I'd love it if you could give a bit of an overview of what that actually is. Okay, so I just realized how shameless I was to just ask you to share our fundraising campaign. Nothing shameless <laughs> about sliding into my DMs. With that. <laughs> so the Kafala system is a system that is spread all over the Middle East. It is a system of sponsorship. Sponsorship can be something really beautiful when sponsoring refugees coming to your country. But the Kafala is not that. The Kafala to say it in a very, very direct and, and honest way, is modern-day slavery, modern-day human trafficking happening in several countries in the Middle East, particularly Lebanon, the Emirates, Kuwait, Qatar, uh, Oman, like several Gulf states, and also in a very extreme and in a very problematic way, uh, Saudi Arabia. Kafala means that a family or an agent is sponsoring a girl's visa to come to a country, in our case, to come to Lebanon. She doesn't have a work visa. It's really important. She's sponsored by her employer, which is usually the madame or the boss. It's a family where the girl is going to work as, as a maid. It means also they are not protected by labor law. So these girls, they are fully dependent on the employer's goodwill. They are depending on being paid the salary by him. They don't have labor law protection. They have to give their passport. This is really important. They don't keep their passport with them. The first thing they do when they arrive in Lebanon is they will meet with the agencies. And the agencies then basically, and I'm sorry it sounds this horrible, but this is honest. They are being distributed to the families. Mm -hmm. And once they arrive at the family, the first thing that happens is they take away the passports. Furthermore, the permission to stay in Lebanon is based on that sponsorship. So that means if there is a decision by the family to not employ this girl anymore, or this girl runs away before her contract ends, or she's being kicked out because the family doesn't want to pay for her anymore, her permission to stay in Lebanon immediately ceases, which makes her an illegal. And this is where all the problems of the system become really, really obvious. You take a human being from their country, give them false promises. This is another thing why it's human trafficking. These girls come here with a completely different idea of what their life is going to look like. You bring them to this country, you take away their mobility by taking away their passport, you take away their status as a human being in this country by making them dependent on your goodwill and on your permission to stay. So just to recap, there are around 400,000 migrant domestic workers in Lebanon right now. They come from countries such as Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Ethiopia, Sudan, Ghana, Kenya and others to work in private households as maids. 
They are excluded from Lebanese labour law and 94% of these women have their passports confiscated by their employees on arrival, leaving them at risk of exploitation, physical, emotional and sexual abuse. Shockingly, two migrant domestic workers die in Lebanon every single week and things have got worse than ever for these women over the past year. Lebanon has been hit hard by an economic crisis, by the pandemic and also by the devastating explosion at its port back in August. This trio of factors has meant that many families who were sponsoring domestic workers have no longer wanted to feed, clothe or house them, let alone pay them, resulting in them taking desperate action. Since the pandemic and since the economic crisis has hit Lebanon so hard, there has been this horrific trend of kicking out the girls, driving them to their embassies and telling them figure it out from here. Without their passports often as well, right? Exactly. They keep the passports in order to avoid any liability. And they lie saying the girls ran away or stole things and breached the contract they have in order not to be responsible for booking their return flights or for being held legally responsible. So in recent months, hundreds of girls have been dropped outside their embassies in Beirut and left to fend for themselves, often without their passports. This terminates their contract with their employer and leaves them illegal, unable to stay and work and unable to get home. Not just this, there are also many girls who have run away from their sponsors or their madams as they refer to their female bosses. Despite these clear violations, justice for these girls is not being done. The system per se and the authorities are not behind the workers. They are behind the employers. So even though there's so many cases of girls being in horrible situations with these essentially owners or sponsors, I heard that there's never been a case of a madame or someone who has sponsored one of these girls to be prosecuted for the abuses that they've subjected these girls to. I personally don't know about any cases, but I don't want to claim that there never was one. But... For sure, the girls don't have support from the authorities and from the legal mm-hmm. judiciary in, a, in general. I mean, it's so easy to accuse someone of stealing and immediately you look, you look like the bad guy. So what we have right now is a lot of the girls are stuck here because there are criminal charges against them and they've been reported to the general security and the police. So they cannot leave Lebanon. Right. So that's because their family that they were working with has accused them of stealing, for example, and that stops them from being able to get on a flight and get home. Exactly. Exactly. Often they're being accused of stealing money or gold or mobile phones. And the families do that so that they're not responsible for them, basically, once they've left the house and to get home and what happens to them next. There are two things. It's about not being responsible. And I think there is a lot of racism. Mm -hmm. I've heard voice messages that the girls receive from their madams when they ran away, especially the cases where the girls ran away at night because of abuse, because they haven't been paid for seven months and are not willing to stay. So I've heard voice messages of people telling them, we will come and get you, police will come and get you and I hope your life will be miserable and I don't want you, I will get another girl, there are many like you. I actually have an example of one of these threatening voice messages from an employer of a girl named Florence and it was sent to her just after she had escaped. Tomorrow morning, Florence, you will see what I will do with you. 
you know that I can go to your family and I have people live in Africa. Tomorrow morning I will go to the, the police. They are dehumanizing these girls and there is no sense of understanding that the girls deserve to have their freedom, that, which is really ridiculous. But they are so dehumanized that a madame or a boss wouldn't even realize how inhumane and cruel and disgusting their behavior is. They think they're good people. And that's something that I want to unpick because I think that, you know, if you have someone living in your home, anyone, whoever it might be, surely you get close to them. Surely you understand that they're a human being and you see that they live just like you. They need food, they need water, they need sleep, whatever that may be. So where do you think that that comes from? Why is there not a more of a connection? Pure racism. There is no way to say it in a nicer way than pure racism because it's really important. The kafala system has a lot of different ethnic groups and national groups that are in Lebanon. And some groups are treated better than others and they are more expensive to get. This includes the groups from the Philippines and from Southeast Asian countries in general. They have a better status. They are treated and seen better than the African migrant workers. So there is no explanation for that except for racism. Mm -hmm. I'd like to take the opportunity to read a quote from The Guardian here. They write, The cruelty of this kafala system is the result of a racist hierarchy in which black workers find themselves at the bottom. Of all of the nationalities that jostle and hustle for a living in the Middle East and the wider Arab world, dark-skinned African women are the cheapest to hire, the most desperate and the most abused. I'm not saying every Lebanese family that has a migrant domestic worker live with them is bad, but... I haven't heard of any girl having her own room. Most girls sleep on a mattress or on the floor in the pantry or in the kitchen. If they're lucky, they have a day off per month. Many girls don't. Many girls are not even allowed to leave the house by themselves because they are not trusted. Again, they are not seen as humans. There are videos and campaigns saying that the pets are treated better than the migrant domestic workers that live with these families. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that's absolutely true. And I'm, I'm sad to say that and sad to know that there are people living like this, treating another human being in such an abusive, inhumane way. And I guess the system allows that and lends itself to almost encourage that behavior, right? Because there's no repercussions. Absolutely. It is a problem of the system, but it's also a problem of mentality. There are so many young generations in Lebanon growing up, not seeing that this is wrong, of having someone cleaning up everything behind them, that it is normal for them to tell their maid, go downstairs and get me a Pepsi, instead of moving their asses. I'm sorry for that, but for moving their asses downstairs themselves. It is so normalized to have someone do the work for you that the new generations will also continue this system. Of course, I'm not saying everyone. There are so many activists trying to fight against the system and to have it abolished. But again, many of the kids who grew up with migrant domestic workers, with a maid in the household, they know the comfort mm -hmm. of not having to take care of a household and they will want to have the same for their lives. I think it's probably time to hear from some of the girls who have lived this experience of coming to Lebanon under the kafala system. 
Have a listen to this audio from a video that Dara took of one of the girls showing her the bruises and burns all over her body. Um, this, the lady brought me coffee and this one was the day he beat me with stick. Oh, my hand everywhere. And that is it. Okay. Even I, I still have some mark inside my body. This lady puts it very eloquently. Most of we women that you see, we have dignities in our county. It's only when we come to um, when we come to work here, yeah, we find ourselves like nobody. But we are some bodies in our countries. There is sometimes that I go through so much abuses that I'm thinking of killing myself because I think that that is the only solution to my problem. And finally, a clip from some Cameroonian ladies protesting outside their embassy. Please, we need your help. We want to go back home. We want to go back home. Is it it? We want to go back home. 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 Let's go back to my interview with Dara where we discussed the commodification of these women. The idea that they are seen as a product, that people are not seen as human beings, or these girls are not seen as human beings, came clear to me when I learned more about how these agents work, right? So I read that families will go to an agency and look through a brochure, basically, and then they can choose, you know, based on their criteria, what age, what nationality, whether the girl speaks good Arabic, or whether she speaks any Arabic, or some of those criteria, they basically look through a brochure and they pick a girl. Yeah, there are also religious backgrounds, mm-hmm. by the way, Christian families choosing a Christian girl. It gets even worse, by the way, there are Facebook groups where people advertise that they're done with their migrant workers and they sell them for $1,000 and attach like passport pictures and publish that on Facebook groups. So what is the problem? The agencies in Nigeria or in all the countries where the girls come from, which includes Ethiopia, Kenya, Cameroon, Sierra Leone, Gambia, Ghana, and Nigeria. In in my case, I've been introduced to the Nigerian community through colleagues. And I knew I don't have the capacity to work with more than one nationality right now because it's it was over 100 girls at one point mm-hmm. that I was providing humanitarian relief to and organizing some kind of database to help figure out how to organize their flights back home. But anyway, so in these countries, in my case, the experiences from the from Nigeria is there are agencies in Nigeria, not like offices in public. No, they are like a friend of a friend or a cousin or a stepfather who tells these young girls and with young, I mean, 18, 19, 20 years old that there is a working opportunity for them to make a lot of money in one year or in two years and then to have savings to open up their own businesses when they return. So a lot of these girls were lured into this human trafficking system. Like they were told, you will work in a supermarket, you will work in an office, you will work in a shop for clothing. They didn't know they were going to turn into slaves. They didn't know they were going to be maids. They thought they will work four days a week 
have like a $400, $500 salary, if not more. And then they have the rest of the week to pursue different careers. I had one girl saying she wanted to work as a stylist and a fashion designer. She did design in, in school. And at the end, she was stuck in a house for 24 hours, seven days a week. So they are lured into this. That's the first problem. The second problem is they arrive in Lebanon and they're literally beaten up at the agent's office here in Lebanon before they go to the family. They're literally being broken down before they're sent to a family. So there, there's too, there is too much fear to even have a first attempt of escaping. Okay. So they know that the agency isn't there to help them, basically. Oh, no, the opposite. The agents are perpetrators. A lot of them abuse the girls sexually. They beat them up. Why, if this is the case, that once they get here, they're desperate to return to Nigeria or to their home country, why is that not filtering back that information to their countries? Why do these girls keep coming? the stigma. A lot of girls will not talk about their experiences when they're back home. I've met one girl who said, please don't publish a picture of me or use my name because my family thinks I'm in Canada. And I jokingly started to call her Miss Canada because she is so scared that her family will find out that she's been enslaved for over a year, sexually abused, beaten up by an employer. There is so much shame and so much fear of being shunned as well that they wouldn't talk about it openly. And then again, these agencies, these offices that we talk about like a business model, they are organized crime. They are human traffickers. There is sex trafficking. They are slave traders. So these people have a wide outreach. And there is even more. Some girls are being forced into sex work. They are pushed into sex work. This is not something you want to go home and tell your family as a 20-something-year-old. That's what happened to you. And again, and, and this is something that's really important to me. A lot of these girls, in my case with the Nigerians, they have really good educational backgrounds. They are not some naive girls as people like to paint them, like as uneducated people, which is what the agents do as well. They paint them as like these uneducated, dumb girls. This is how the employers see them. But they've studied uh, public health. They've studied business admin. They studied fashion design. We have so many nurses, so many of the girls that are here who have a background in, in public health or in the health industry actually came here to work, save money and open up their own pharmacies. Like imagine I studied law for seven years and because of my skin color or my country of origin, people automatically assume I'm an illiterate and then I'm being forced to clean houses for a salary that I don't even consider an actual salary, which is, it's actually disgusting of how little they are being paid. So tell me a little bit about the work that you've been doing with these girls. I'm grateful and lucky enough to have actually experienced it over the last couple of days. And it's incredible and magical and also so necessary. So give us a little overview of like how you have been supporting these girls once they've left their houses or their madams or their placements or their sponsors, I guess. 
I would wor- call the work mostly chaotic. <laughs> <laughs> That for sure. But I think we need a lot of flexibility considering the country we are in, considering the circumstances we are in, and considering how fast we have to respond to certain situations. So I haven't been working in this kind of field for a long time, but it became very obvious how many girls are being kicked out by their employers. And I'm not talking about like 10, 20 We're talking about hundreds of girls from Ethiopia, Nigeria, Gambia, Cameroon, Kenya, sleeping on the streets in front of their embassies. This is as a result of the economic crisis, the fact that these families didn't want to even feed and clothe and house these girls anymore. Exactly. So they haven't, most of the girls haven't received salaries for up to nine months, but The problem is they wouldn't leave because they still had a roof over their head and they still were able to eat daily meals. And the families are not willing to cover for that. So this started to really escalate and it made its rounds in social media and even in some newspapers. And that's when I got in touch with This is Lebanon and I offered to help them write a fundraising campaign. I was like, I'm a good writer. I enjoy making a narrative and the story of the girls in order to have people understand what they've been through. So I started to get in touch with three Nigerian girls. All of them are back now, by the way, they're all back in Nigeria. So I've started to get in touch with them and I told them I would like to interview you. I want to hear your story and I want to visit your houses. They lived in safe houses. And these houses that you're talking about, these are houses that the girls have kind of either pooled their resources or are paid for by the embassy once they've left their sponsors. Between 10 and 30 of them live in a room together, right? Exactly. So when we say house, it's like a crowded room with a few mattresses on the floor and a few suitcases in the corner. Exactly. So thank you for correcting <laughs> this. Um, so we call it a safe house, but you're absolutely right. It's uh, unfurnished apartments, usually one or two rooms. If They are lucky it's two rooms, but then they are 30 girls or like one room and it's maybe 10 girls. So I started to visit all these girls regularly, delivering food to them, talking to them, building a database. And that's when suddenly everything went crazy. I got in touch with people from the Nigerian government. I've been talking to representatives of the Nigerian embassy in Lebanon. I've got contacted by activists against human trafficking in the US, in Nigeria, all over the world. And I found myself in this huge network of people. And and it got really scary sometimes because this is not my job. I do this at night or at my weekends or during my vacation. I still have a fully paid job from 10 to 5. This is something I do besides, and it turned into a second job that is very time consuming. And like you said to me the other day when we were there, like you're not trained in this. And no, actually, it's something that emotionally and physically and mentally, it's intense because we're talking about girls who are desperate to go home, right? They're desperate to go. They've been through so much. All they want to do is go back to their homes. And in this case, Nigeria. And that's what you're basically working on doing with the embassies, right? Getting these girls ready to go home. That's the goal. Exactly. 
I met one girl who had inflammated abscesses in her rectum. She was beaten up and kicked out of her house and she lived four days on the street before she found the safe house. And I tried to get her into a hospital and we were constantly rejected due to racism, due to her not having her passport. It was with her boss. All we needed basically was for her to get cleared of the coronavirus in order to go to an MSF center because the MSF center said, we want to check on her but we need to make sure she doesn't have coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And she had fever, which is also a symptom of an infection. So we kept trying. I was with her at the hospital for five hours and I was really losing my shit. So I started to cause a scene. I got really loud because we, we were there five hours ago. We could have easily have her cleared and have her in the MSF center and we didn't get in. And we went back to the safe house and Eventually, I managed to find private gynecologists being willing to come. And they were on their way there at night when there was also shooting in the area where the girls lived. And I was literally calling the doctors, like, make a U-turn, don't go to the neighborhood. People are shooting with Kalashnikovs and the girls are scared. And I told them to turn off the lights and not stay close to windows and barricade the door with sofa. And then the next morning when sunlight was back up, we managed to go and have her treated. But she could have easily died. She could and she have, was close to it, right? Yeah, she was delirious for two days. She had a blood infection. She could have died of sepsis because of two abscesses that could have been easily treated with antibiotics and washing them out. It wouldn't have taken a lot of effort. And it was such a horrible week for us to find a solution for this young woman to be treated. Thankfully, she's back in Nigeria as well. She's one of the girls who was on the early flights in, in end of August. So a lot of these girls that we've met over the last few days are on these flight lists and are going back to Nigeria imminently. And it really made me laugh when they're all wanting to stay in contact with you and they get to Nigeria and like, oh, what's your number? What's your number? And you're like, okay, I can't give you all my number because I also need to sleep. And I just thought that was great because, yeah, I hear you. Like, you need to set some boundaries. But do you stay in contact with any of the girls um, once they're back in Nigeria? So the thing is, at the beginning, I gave my number to everyone. And my number was also shared without me knowing, which is, for example, how a trafficker got my number. So now only house speakers get my number. And basically... Four or five house speakers are back and they send me pictures and they send me voice messages and they ask me when I will visit Nigeria. On Friday, it was my birthday and I got voice messages saying happy birthday. They, they want to video call, but that's the point. Like, I treat them as equals. I want to treat them like a friend, but also they are beneficiaries. They are a part of my work mm. and I need to also have time for my friends and my private life and sleeping. I love sleeping. I love reading comic books. I work until midnight or 1am and then I have to have this one hour of reading my comic books. So I had to really pull the brakes with sharing my numbers and staying in touch. But I told them they have their own group chats. They can collect the photos there and then send them to me. 
Yeah, it's beautiful. And I mean, it must be like the most rewarding thing ever when you do see them back in Nigeria and happy and with their families. It's such a beautiful thing that your work has an end in sight for each individual and that there is something that you can actively do to make their situation better. Yeah, I have this kind of attitude or this opinion that I don't want to see it as rewarding because it should be normal to help another human being to go home and that it is their right to be back in their country and that it is their right to be treated in a humane way. So I often, and that this is also something I check myself on, I don't need appreciation. I don't need gratitude because they don't have to give gratitude for going home. And I don't do this because I need these feelings. I do this because I'm convinced that they should be treated in that way because I also want to be treated that way. So I also check myself a lot, especially when I reach certain points of exhaustion when I, and please don't under, misunderstand me, these girls can be really cheeky. <laughs> they can give me such headaches when they're nagging because I was really, really soft. I, I Because I was staying with them and talking to them and not just like dropping off the box and run away. So they started to become a bit more demanding. So I've reached the point where it's like, why am I even doing this? <laughs> yeah. So that's why I check myself. I don't have to have a reward because I'm convinced that this is how it should be. I hear you and I agree, but it seems like we are coming from an international perspective on this. And actually, for a lot of Lebanese families, it seems so normal and so normalized that it seems like it's not only effort that needs to happen, it's a shift in understanding and awareness and perspective on this system. Do you see that that is starting to happen? Absolutely, it is needed. It is very happening very slowly and only among circles, like the activist circles, the circles of people who maybe spent time outside of Lebanon and also learned to live without having a maid in their house. What is important, though, is in this shift is not talking about reform. It's talking about abolishment. Mm -hmm. There is nothing to reform about the system that is, from its root, completely flawed. There needs to be a complete abolishment because there were attempts by the government claiming to reform the system, which is a cosmetic fixture. Like it's just fixing it a little bit from the outside to look better. It's not actually going to change anything. So, yeah, abolishing the system. That's an amazing call to action, a very clear yeah. thing that needs to happen. And what you're doing here is so important, so incredible. And I feel grateful to have experienced it with you for the last couple of days. And I appreciate you for sharing it today, too. Thank you for having me here and for giving me a chance to talk and for witnessing a part of the work, including the rather shitty parts. I think um, raising awareness and bringing it to a wider audience is one step towards the right direction. I totally agree. After seeing the impact of the kafala system firsthand and directly hearing the horrors that these women have been through, I was curious to hear the other side of the story whilst in Beirut. I wanted to speak to someone who supported the system, a sponsor, someone who used it. Separately from this project, I spent some time with a lovely Lebanese man called Ziad, another humanitarian who works tirelessly to support the hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees in Lebanon. 
He has a very different perspective on Dara to the Kafala system and has an Ethiopian girl living with his own family. Have a listen to what he has to say on the topic. Hello, I'm Ziad. I'm from Lebanon. I work at an NGO. Uh, most of our works in relief for Syrian refugees and Palestinian refugees. And also we have a clinic for refugees in uh, the camps. And today I've had the pleasure of actually experiencing some of that work and it's truly wonderful. But the reason why I've got you here today is actually to talk about something different because this podcast episode is about the kafala system. In the last few days, I've been talking to some different people about their thoughts on this system and I've been talking to some girls who came to Lebanon to work as domestic workers And I really wanted to have you on the podcast because you're a friend of mine. My friend Millie, she told me that you were her favorite person in Lebanon ever. And you're Lebanese, right? Yes. And I think it's really important to get the perspective of somebody who has actually grown up knowing this system and having a domestic worker in your home. So do you think you could tell us a little bit about your experience of this? Yeah, first, uh, thanks for your feeling. As a Lebanese uh, guy, I live in a family. Most of our youth went outside. They have to earn money because there's a civil war in Lebanon long time ago. Then after that, each time we try to stand on our feet, a lot of crisis came, another crisis. And especially the, our position here in the Middle East, not stable. So our youth went outside uh, Lebanon to work and they can send money for their parents here in Lebanon. When you leave your mom, your father alone, at least you have to send anyone to take care of them, to help them, uh, to serve them. So most of Lebanese families like that have a foreigner outside, they send money for them and they send anyone to be with them at home. So what Ziad is saying is that many young Lebanese people leave Lebanon to find work internationally and send money home. In doing so, they leave behind parents and grandparents for whom they find a domestic worker from another country to care for them. Me, as an example, my brothers and sisters outside Lebanon, they left my mom with me. They left me with my mom, let's say it's like that. <laughs> my mom, she's getting older day after day and she needs a lady to be with her, to help her at home, and uh, while, while I'm not available at home. So we have uh, a Syrian girl with us three years ago. It's too easy. It's not too cheap, but every Lebanese family can av- afford it. It's 200 for as a month. I think anyone lives in Lebanon can afford it. $200, right? $200, mm-hmm. yeah. And you have to pay for the tickets, and you have to pay for the... Uh, accommodation. This is uh, normal. Okay, we bring it uh, for two years. She was happy with us, so that's why she want to stay more. So we renewed her accommodation, and she stay with us. But when the bad economy hit us and uh, the local currency start to get down, and my salary never reached two hundred dollars. So if I have to work from day at night and double shift, maybe. I'll never afford the salary of uh, this Asubian lady. She stays with my mom. Then this uh, lady prefer not that she want to go to another country. 
Then we help her and she went to UAE. This is an example, but I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, ladies, Ethiopian or uh, Nigerian, or they didn't treat, uh, treat, treat them well from those family because they left them. Okay, they cannot afford them. So those family have to left this girl out or she have to work with no price. I don't know, believe that anyone can afford that to work with no uh, cost. So they have to go to their embassy. So a lot of uh, stories came from the embassy. A lot of uh, girls st- sleep outside, no roof over them. A lot of miserable situation we heard about here in Lebanon for those uh, girls. So when the economic crisis hit, Ziad was unable to continue paying his Ethiopian domestic worker, so his family helped her to move to another sponsor in the UAE. Other girls are not so lucky. As Ziad explains, many families were unable to or unwilling to support their workers to get another job or to go home, leaving them stranded outside their embassies in Beirut. Why do you think that women come from other countries and not Lebanese women or Syrian women that are already in the country to do this work? Because usually Lebanese, I don't know if you met the Lebanese lady. They don't she want to do felt, this work? Yeah, yeah. She felt that I'm different. So the Lebanese people, they don't want to work as cleaners, for example? Yeah, as a Lebanese woman uh, want to be uh, special she enjoyed to tell her neighbors that she already have a maid. So I don't know if this psychological or not, but sometimes Lebanese women like that. It's a status thing, right? Yeah. And do you think that the fact that a lot of these female workers are coming from African countries, for example, do you think that often they're not treated very well due to racism? I don't believe that uh, we have this uh, manner here in Lebanon. Because uh, actually when you hire anyone to work with you, you need him. So if you need anyone, you should not face him with uh, bad manners or bad uh, attitude. So no, I don't hear any aggressive feeling to, uh, towards those uh, Ethiopian ladies, for example. But I want you to be the, one, to be the Lebanese family. Okay, you hire a person, but you don't have money to pay. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. The, this change, it's changed suddenly. So if I know my currency is too bad, I'll never hire anyone from outside. But usually I know my money, uh, how much I can afford. So I can hire another uh, person to work with me at my home. But when this currency changed uh, suddenly, okay, what I can, can I do? I have to apologize from this lady. Okay, I'm sorry, I can't do anything for you. I can't give you uh, your salary because I don't have it. So you are in front of two options, or you have to go, or you have to work with no price. Yeah, and I think it's really important that we do hear this perspective of the Lebanese family, and that's why you're here. So I very much appreciate you for sharing this. Thank you, Yasmin, and thanks you for uh, this uh, way to express uh, my feeling about this uh, situation. Thank you again. So there you go. I specifically included this interview with Ziad to highlight that not every sponsor in this system should be demonised. 
Of course, there are cases where a family is kind and their domestic worker is able to send money home as planned. But we cannot ignore the thousands of human rights abuses taking place within this system. Back to Dara on this. Dara, do you think that there is a case for, you know, it could be a good thing for a girl coming from Nigeria who has no work opportunities there to come and work here and send money home and potentially work with a kind family who does look after her? It is possible. There are good cases. I I have a friend's family. They have a migrant domestic worker who had her own bedroom and stayed with them for 10 years and had a beautiful relationship. Mm But the problem isn't that. I want migrant domestic workers to be able to come here and make a good living. But the problem is that the system is seeing them as a product, Mm -hmm. not as a human being. As soon as this system is abolished and there is a new system created that includes work visa and permits issued by the government, not by private agencies Mm -hmm. or employers, and protection by labor law, which is the one thing I think is non-negotiable, of course. I mean, I am someone who came to Lebanon to work as well, and I've been working in other countries. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but I also know there needs to be protection and there are human rights. So there have been talks about reform of the kafala system. Introducing 48-hour work weeks, compulsory rest days, sick leave and the ability for a worker to terminate their contract early. But Human Rights Watch have issued concerns that these steps will remain just ink on paper. Without proper enforcement of these measures, Kafala system will continue to deny migrant workers of their basic human rights. To join This Is Lebanon in calling for its abolishment, check them out at thisislebanon961 on Instagram. A brilliant film to watch on this topic is Capernaum on Amazon Prime. Other actions you can take to support this podcast and join the Worldwide Tribe are to visit our shop and buy a t-shirt or a hoodie or donate. All details are in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, rate it and leave a review. It helps more people to find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we will become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. A big shout out to Alexander Wells at alexanderwells.co.uk for our audio production and original score and to Ez Stone for mixing this episode.